Today's reading comes from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, James. Uh, good morning, Redemption. Happy New Year. Good to see you guys all here today. I really want to just uh, express my thanks and appreciation to Camille and Andrew for uh, leading this, us this morning. Uh, Cody and his family are out of town on a much-deserved little rest uh, or something like I don't know. I don't know where he is. Anyway, um, he'll be back next week, though. Don't worry. I've been texting with him. So um, if you're new here today, we are glad that you are here. Uh, we don't ordinarily have service at 10, but uh, the calendar was really goofy uh, this year, and so uh, we decided to combine our morning services and then also have our, our five tonight. And uh, I discovered that there's actually three groups of people that attend our congregation. There's, there's the group of people that have no idea why we wouldn't just have our regular services on today. Uh, then there's a group of people that have no idea why we're having services at all today. Um, and then there's all y'all, so that's really nice. Although I know I messed up some of your schedules by talking to some of you this morning. Uh, some of you did show up at 9, decided to go have breakfast, and now you're back. But now your body and your stomach are all confused because usually you have breakfast after the 9 o'clock service. So you're wondering what to do next. Lunch. <laughs> so just go to lunch. So it'll be a great way to start the new year. Um, I, I want to just explain a little bit about what's going on and why I'm doing what I'm doing this morning. Um, uh, it is a weird, it's January 1st, it's a Sunday, so just schedules are messed up, people are still out of town or traveling or whatever, and so uh, the, the preaching collective, which I'm a part of at Redemption Church, we're, by the way, if you're new to this, Redemption Church is one church with 10 congregations, uh, each with a primary local communicator like myself, I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, but we do tend to preach through the same uh, text uh, all year long. And for 2017, we're going to be going through the book of Acts for about 10 months, and then we're going to have the last eight weeks of the year, sort of an extended Advent series. Uh, so we're going to take the next 10 months to go through the book of Acts, but officially, Redemption's not starting the book of Acts until next week on the 8th. Um, but one of the things that uh, is happening is that we're starting right in with the first 11 verses, and we're going to have to go through the first 11 verses. Uh, for somebody who's uh, kind of a type A geek like me, uh, that doesn't allow me the opportunity to do an introductory message into the book of Acts. And so that's what I've decided to do today. I think it's important for us to be able to have the context of the book of Acts before we go forward. And I know there are a lot of people who are going to miss this message, but I wanted to get it recorded. Right, Daniel? Okay. I wanted to get it recorded so we could put it on the website so people could hear it this week before coming and be, and be fully prepared. Not all of the uh, redemption um, congregations are doing this. They're doing, a lot of them are just doing their own things, whatever the spirits led them to talk about. Some of it is like reflections on 2016. I'm just glad 2016 is over, amen? So, yeah. So I saw something on, on the internet yesterday. It was, a, it was a fake movie trailer about a new horror movie about just about 2016. So very, very interesting. Anyway, so um, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll get into this this morning. Lord God, uh, we are grateful 
uh, for your faithfulness to us. Uh, these songs that we've been singing this morning about uh, your majesty and, and who you are, your character, and, and everything that you are to us just reminds us of your majesty, and we're grateful for that. And, and this book that we're going to study uh, is also just not just a great reminder of that, but a, 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 a wonderful witness and testimony to your power and your sovereignty through your son Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so I just pray for this series and I pray for this morning that we would, uh, we would again, just be able to know who you are better and better and better uh, so that we can love you more and understand the great gift that you've given us in your son Jesus Christ. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Acts, 28 chapters. A lot of major themes in this book. Some of you know I like lists, and so there's going to be a couple of long lists this morning. Uh, for those of you who are note takers, take notes. Otherwise, um, if you want to, take a picture of the slide. Once we complete each slide, that might be helpful to some of you. Uh, the rest of you just enjoy or not enjoy listening, whatever it is. But uh, I want to tell you that uh, really I think there are ten major themes in the book of Acts. So I want to first go through that. Here's, here's the first major theme. Jesus, who was crucified, is alive. Uh, and that's a major theme throughout the, the New Testament, and we need to just understand that. But it's driven home in the book of Acts. Number two, Jesus fulfilled all Old Testament prophecy regarding the Messiah, the, the coming Messiah. He did fulfill all of this prophecy, and there's a lot of discussion of that in the book of Acts as uh, the Apostle Luke uh, brings us. I don't know if any of you, this is kind of a my generation thing or maybe even a little bit older than me. I don't know how many of you have heard of a guy named Hugh Ross. He's, uh, anybody, Hugh Ross? Yeah, okay. See, my generation, Barry, thank you. Um, he's, um, he, he's an astrophysicist who, uh, just a brilliant guy, he's written books that I can't even read. I've, tr I've tried reading them. Um, but he, he decided that he was going to test all of the claims of the major religious texts in the world, and he left the Bible um, for the end. He's, he's, he's a double PhD in math and physics. I think by the time he was 25, I mean, absolutely brilliant. And so he was going to scientifically test, he decided, all of the uh, religious, major religious texts in the world. He left the Bible for the end because he figured that one might be the most challenging to test, and really his test was to disprove the, the validity of these religious texts. Uh, and he was able to dismiss most, if not all, of the religious texts within the first day or two that he, that he tested. Um, the story has it uh, that uh, when he went to the Bible, in Genesis 1 alone, it took him 30 days to be able to test that. And he, everything he found in there, he was able to test scientifically and say, uh, this is essentially true. And eventually, he became a Christian because of this. Here you go, another story of an intellectual who decided to disprove uh, the Bible or Jesus or whatever... And he became a Christian in the process of doing that. One of the things that he talks about is how there are about 150 or so uh, Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah that Jesus fulfills perfectly. He says that the odds of fulfilling just eight of those are so astronomical, it would be like covering the state of Texas, 
uh, knee-deep in silver dollars and then throwing one silver dollar into the middle of the state of Texas, mixing up all of those silver dollars, that one silver dollar being painted red, and then blindfolding a person and telling them to walk into the state of Texas, and when they felt the urge to reach down and grab a silver dollar, the chances of them coming up with the red one are the same as Jesus just fulfilling eight of those prophecies. He said the evidence is absolutely clear that Jesus fulfilled the messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. We'll see some of that in the book of Acts. Number three, his followers, Jesus' followers, while timid and bumbling in the Gospels, fearlessly and gladly preach the gospel and truth in the book of Acts, even to the point of death. That resurrection was powerful because they were willing to preach and die because of what happened. They weren't so sure about all this stuff prior to the cross and the resurrection. After that, they were different men. They were different men. Uh, number four, the growth of the early church. Uh, we, we see several places in the book of Acts where Luke makes an editorial comment that the numbers being added to the church every day were in the hundreds or thousands. And so it's the growth of the early church. Number five, the power and movement of the Holy Spirit. Spend just a minute on this. Uh, I think this is an important key for us to understand. Acts is not a book about the Holy Spirit. We don't necessarily go uh, to the book of Acts to study pneumatology, which would be the study of, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so we don't necessarily get our theology of the Holy Spirit from this book, but the book of Acts is the historical record of the Holy Spirit's essential place and definitive work in the early Christian movement. And remember, the Holy Spirit is God. He's part of the Trinity. Sometimes we, we just minimize the Holy Spirit at, at the expense of maximizing the Father and the Son. And we should maximize uh, all three of them. He's, he's God. And the Holy Spirit is always the initiator and always the source of power that everything that happens in the book of Acts. And that's not something that I even have to make an argument for. As we go through the book of Acts and you start to read it very closely, you will see that you can't miss this theme and this truth. We marvel at what Peter and Paul and John and, and to a lesser extent some of the other guys do, and we should but we should never do it at the expense of God's central and primary role in this book. And, and we should remember that uh, those men did those things by the power of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, number six, there is a clear contrast in the book of Acts, which should catapult forward 2,100 years to the church today. There's a clear contrast of the world's ethic and the gospel ethic, something that we talked a lot about during the last half of 2016 as we did the Sermon on the Mount. There's a clear tension, clear tension in the book of Acts of this idea of whether or not we want the approval and the affirmation of other human beings or whether or not we want the approval and affirmation of God. Because very often those two things can't happen at the same time. I would say most of the time those things don't happen at the same time. Number seven, Acts is a book of disruptions. It is disruptive. You, you watch as these stories in the book 
unfolds, as the Holy Spirit is working, and as these men are preaching about Jesus, it disrupts people. It makes them angry. It makes them uncomfortable. Just like today. You walk into a room anywhere today and you just mention Jesus and people are disrupted and it's awkward and it's uncomfortable. That's been happening for 2,100 years. It's the same as today. Jesus and the gospel are disruptive to people who don't know it and don't understand it yet. We need to understand that. Number eight, God saves and calls anyone Anytime and anywhere, regardless of ethnicity, race, culture, religiosity, or previous merits or sin. He can use anybody. He can use anybody. And he can use anything. In, in, in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 22, I hope you understand that God used a donkey to accomplish his purposes. One of the great stories in the Old Testament. Okay? Uh, number nine. Gospel ministry and persecution are irrevocably connected. Gospel ministry and persecution are irrevocably connected. I want you to just sit on this statement for a moment and ponder it and consider it. In the book of Acts, God moved and people died. In the book of Acts, God moved and people died. We don't, we don't think about that the way we ought to. I'm not saying that we need to go out and make sure we die for our faith. I'm just saying that sometimes that's the call. Sometimes that's what's happened. And oh, by the way, if you're not living in the United States, if you're living somewhere else and you're a Christian like Africa, you do die for your faith. God is moving in places like that, and people are dying. This brings up the question of what, what is grace really? We talk a lot about the grace of God. What is grace really? Well, grace is unmerited favor. It's the fact that we did nothing to, to, to have the favor of God bestowed on us that we might be reconciled to him through the cross and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, and be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we could live a life of his purpose and his mission so that we could know the joy of knowing the one true God in the universe. That's grace. We didn't do anything to deserve that. He just bestows his love, mercy, and grace on us. But with that grace often comes trouble. And that is a consistent theme throughout the Bible and not just the, the uh, New Testament. Uh, let me just read from the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 40 through 42. Uh, the disciples who were out preaching, primarily James and, and John um, and Peter, are, are, are keep running into trouble with all the religious professionals. Uh, and, 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 and they want them to stop preaching about Jesus. This has is, this is gone too far now, and you need to stop. And, and they're going to do it by force. And, of course, the disciples continue to preach. But listen to what happens after yet another meeting with the religious um, leaders, verses 40 through 42 in chapter 5. And when they had called in the apostles, when the religious leaders had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now listen to this. 
Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. With grace comes challenges. With grace comes a lot of stuff that we're not going to really want and we're not going to really like. Happy New Year. (laughs) And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Just consider the implications of that. God moves and people die. There must be something bigger and better. Number 10, God builds his church through the calling and gifting of his people. Uh, Boy, one of the greatest tensions I have, very honestly, in ministry is just thinking about how hard I believe I work and the reality that, that the ministry has nothing to do with how hard I work but rather the power of God working through me. And that I get none of the glory and none of the credit, and that's the way it should be. In fact, I've said this before, and I believe this is true intellectually, and I want it to be true in my heart all the time. And if I keep saying it enough, maybe it will be true in my heart all the time as well. Anything good that happens at Redemption Arcadia, give God all the credit. Anything bad that happens at Redemption Arcadia, Call me and blame me, okay? I'm the sinner in this deal, and it's amazing that God even uses me or Stephanie. She's not as big a sinner as me, so maybe that makes more sense, but Cody and James and the the rest of the uh, uh, people here. So God builds his church through the calling and gifting of his people. All right, a little bit of history. Now just some random, you know, academic kind of stuff geeky like I like stuff like this okay so who wrote the book of Acts well Luke wrote it now just for those of you not not the pastor of our gateway congregation this is the same Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke and he wrote it to his friend Theophilus to tell him what happened after the resurrection and how the spirit moved in this new faith community so James read this morning one through uh, three let me just read again one through five to give you an idea Essentially, Luke is writing a a very long letter to, or or a report, a historical report to his friend Theophilus. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to say, began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Uh, Let me also read to you the first few verses of the Gospel of Luke. So you could call um, the book of Acts the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Here's what he says at the beginning of his gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, 
that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Um, Luke was an academic. Uh, he, was, he was probably the smartest guy in the original group uh, with Jesus. He, was, he, he, he uh, investigated thoroughly everything. So whatever he didn't witness with his own eyes, he found witnesses and put together all the testimony in order to write this history, and specifically in the Gospel and Acts, to encourage Theophilus in his faith. And, oh, by the way, to encourage us today in our faith as well. A uh, little bit of trivia for you in case you're ever on Jeopardy and they ask this question. Uh, you can split the pot with me, okay? Um, little trivia, Luke wrote the most in the New Testament of all the human authors. He wrote about 27% of the New Testament. Paul was second. He wrote about 23%. Uh, 5,500 words fewer than Luke, and John is third. He wrote the gospel, he wrote Revelation, and then he wrote his three letters. John is third at about 20%, about 4,000 words fewer than, than Paul wrote. And, and one of the things I want to stress about the book of Acts, this is really important, I think. The book of Acts, like all histories, like every history ever written, no matter what it claims, is selective in what it's in what it covers. It is not a comprehensive history, and it makes no claim to be so. Uh, this last week, I, I was away for a few days, and I got to read a book that's been on my stack for a couple of months that I couldn't wait to get to. It's written by a journalist who investigated uh, what's known as the Big Rich or the Big Four. Has anybody read the Big Rich? Anybody? Okay, so you guys need to get off the internet and start reading some books occasionally. Um, I know some of you are like waiting for the movie. The Big Rich is about the four uh, wealthiest independent oil men in Texas during the 20th century. It's the story of those guys. So like the, the Hunt family, which ended up very instrumental in the AFL and then the N NFL. They bought the Houston, oil, uh, oil, uh, the Houston Oilers and built the Astrodome and all that stuff. Uh, it's a 450-page history of these four men and everything that they were involved in, from the oil to the politics and everything. And even this guy, who wrote a 450-page history just on these four men and their families, even he says, don't even begin to think that this is a comprehensive history. There's no way. It's very selective. I went through uh, literally hundreds of thousands of documents to be able to put this together. It's not comprehensive. I'm just telling a story. By the way, it's a great book. It's absolutely fascinating. So Acts, like all histories, is also selective. Now, the dates of the action that take place in Acts are from about 30 to 60 A.D., essentially from the ascension of Jesus about 40 days uh, after his crucifixion until Paul's imprisonment in Rome. So it covers 30 years in these 28 chapters. And Jesus and the Apostle Paul and Luke were all contemporaries and roughly the same age, although they didn't all come together until later on in life. Uh, and it was probably written, most likely written, uh, sometime in the early 60s, uh, almost immediately after all the action took place. There's been a few people who have uh, posited that it was written more like in the 80s, but there's no evidence really for that at all. And something to consider, when they had this document, when Theophilus had this document and he started sharing it with other, 
other people. Certainly, he was able to toggle between the book of Acts, this document that he had, and, and the Old Testament to the extent that he knew the Old Testament. So he was able to kind of toggle back and forth. He wasn't able to look at the other New Testament documents yet because they either hadn't been written or they weren't in major circulation as of yet. Maybe there was some oral uh, sounds about it, but that's, but that's about it. But when we read the book of Acts, we get the benefit of not only toggling back to the Old Testament and looking at all those references there, but also comparing the book of Acts to all of the letters of Paul and to the Gospels and to everything else that's written in the New Testament. And here you go, we can do it digitally as well. You can just do it on your phone if you want. Uh, one other thing, I think this is really important for us to understand application-wise. You and I can sit down uninterrupted and read the book of Acts in roughly an hour and a half, maybe two hours. And, and that would be a good reading. That's not skimming. That's, that's a, a good reading, an hour and a half to two hours. But the book of Acts covers 30 years. Now, we have to remember that. Uh, very often what happens in ministry is that we get very impatient about how quickly God might not be moving in a community or on a, a project or whatever. We get impatient and we look at the book of Acts and we say, oh, look how fast this stuff happened here, man. It covers 30 years. What the book of Acts shows us, one of the things it shows us is the incredibly faithful patience that the people of Jesus had in the midst of this. They were at this, most of them, for 30 or 40, John, even longer. 60 years, even. Faithful patience. Now, when I say that, I just want to make sure. I'm not saying that you and I should not abandon urgency or ambition. That's not what I'm saying. We, we need to have a sense of urgency about what we're doing because it's important. And we need to be ambitious. That's true. God gives us ambition and urgency, but we have to temper it with faithful patience. We have to be able to do that. The narrative line of the book of Acts, uh, chapters 1 through 8 are primarily about Peter and maybe some, some John. Uh, chapters 9 through 15, kind of uh, Peter and Paul, or who was originally known as Saul. And then chapters 16 through 28, primarily about the apostle Paul. Again, his name originally was Saul when we meet him in, in Scripture. Uh, geographically, it's a mixture of Jerusalem and Antioch and Greece and the Mediterranean and other parts of Asia and Europe as well. It's famous for recording the three major missionary trips of the Apostle Paul during the second half of, of the book in order to preach the gospel to all peoples and to be able to start uh, churches. And then one other geeky little thing about the author Luke, there are times when Luke is not just telling the story, but he's actually a part of the story. Uh, for instance, at the beginning of, uh, towards the beginning of chapter 16, he switches from using the pronoun they to the pronoun we. W when Paul and his band get to Troas, apparently Luke was in Troas, so he's talking uh, more collectively as he writes. A and then later on in chapter 16, when, when they leave and go to Philippi, he starts using the pronoun they again. And then comes along chapter 20, verse 5, when they all get back to Troas, he starts using uh, the pronoun we again. And then when they leave, in sometime in chapter 21, he goes back to the pronoun they. And then again, the last two chapters, starting in 27, as Paul gets on the ship to be taken to uh, Rome for his trial and his imprisonment, 
Luke apparently has come to Jerusalem and is now with Paul for the rest of the time, and in, and in fact, apparently stays with Paul while he's in prison. Um, if you look at 2 Timothy, now I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, 2 Timothy is right after 1 Timothy. Yeah, okay. Here we go. 2 Timothy, Paul writes this towards the end of his second letter to Timothy, his friend. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So Demas had come alongside Paul at one point and was helping Paul, okay? And then he, just, and then he got just kind of, you know, captured by the lure of the world and decided to leave for Las Vegas, essentially, okay? Have you noticed you don't run into many uh, children who've been named Demas? Because he's, he's kind of known for being very unfaithful and kind of stabbing Paul uh, in the back, okay? Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Now, they went in, in, in terms of ministry. They went to do ministry there. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. By the way, any of you know that that little saying there, get Mark and bring him to me because he's very useful to me in ministry, if you know the backstory there, which we're going to get to in Acts chapter 15, you know that that's a major, major deal right there and really fun uh, to investigate, okay? Uh, one of the other keys that I want to mention before we get to our last list for the morning is that Acts is not a how-to book on ministry or missions. It's not a how-to book. For instance, Acts is about as much a policy and instruction manual for how to do missions as it is a policy and instruction manual for what to do if you're involved in a shipwreck on the Mediterranean. Oh my gosh, we're, we're, we're getting ready to have a shipwreck on the Mediterranean. We'll pull out Acts chapter 28, then we'll know what to do. No, 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 no. It is descriptive more than it is prescriptive. It's descriptive more than it is prescriptive. Nevertheless, we do find great encouragement, wisdom, and application throughout all this book, and that's why we're taking 10 months to go through it. So let me wrap up this way. Uh, <laughs> if you remember David Letterman, he had those top 10 lists sometimes. Okay, I got a top 12 list, all right, that I put together. Uh, this is like a preview to the book of Acts. Th these would, are what I would say, or maybe you could argue with me, the top tw 12 moments that we'll find in, in the book of Acts. Now, if you've been around the church thing and the Jesus thing for a long, long time, what you're going to discover in this list, I think, is that some of your favorite stories from Scripture are actually in the book of Acts. You're going to be like, wow, I, I didn't realize all those stories were in the book of Acts, okay? And if you're brand new to this, this is just going to give you a little preview of what you're in for because it's, it's really exciting. So when I was a brand new Christian 30 years ago, this was one of my favorite books to read because it's narrative and it just, it just told the story of the power of God. So uh, here we go. And by the way, I've done this uh, in, I've listed them chronologically in the book. So it's not like what I think is the most important. It's just the 12, all right? So here you go. Number one, the ascension of Jesus. We're going to look at that next week. It's the first 11 verses of Acts. Number two, Peter preaches at Pentecost in response to the coming of the Holy Spirit and the subsequent mocking that all the disciples get because the Holy Spirit is moving in them. Uh, verse 38 of chapter 2, as Peter is wrapping up his sermon in which 3,000 people came to know Jesus. That must have been some sermon. 
uh, says this, And Peter declared, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Repent and be baptized so that you can be forgiven of your sins, reconciled to God, and you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, God's gift to us. Number three, Peter and John before the council. We looked at one of those spots in chapter 5. There's also a big one in chapter 3. And I love how uh, this sort of ends for Peter and John in front of the council, the, the council of religious leaders there who were very angry with them. Here's what happens in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 4. So they called them, Peter and John, and charged them not to speak at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. There's power there. Number four, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. This is a very dark story. This is a story of people actually giving money to the church and then dying for it. It's also a story that I think the, the, the main um, application that you and I should get out of this story is that, is that we can lie to other people all day long and get away with it, but we can't lie to God. We might think we're getting away with it, but we can't. We can't. Peter even says to Ananias, you have not lied to man, but to God. There must have been a little chill going down his back when, when he said that to him. Number five, the stoning of Stephen. Chapter seven. Uh, Stephen preaches uh, to all of these uh, uh, Jewish religious people uh, who are really dead set against the idea of, of Jesus being the Messiah. And the funny thing about this sermon, it's one of the longest recorded sermons we have in Scripture anywhere. Um, the funny thing about it is that uh, Stephen really is never quite allowed to get to what he really wants to preach on, which is the gospel in Jesus. He's just kind of getting there when he says this in verse 51 to his audience. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. Uh, that was enough. They killed him. <laughs> That's what happens when you preach like this. You know, Spurgeon used to preach like this. And people wanted to kill him, too. And Stephen says, as your fathers did, so do you. Here's essentially what Stephen's saying to these people. You're unable to think for yourself. Kind of similar to our culture today, isn't it? We, we, we just sort of latch on to these little sound bites, these, these little tweets, these little postings, these little t-shirts and bumper stickers, and we just start repeating them. Over and over. And we don't even think about whether or not they're true. Number six, Paul's conversion. Or Saul at the time. Saul was Jewish and so he had a Jewish name. He later changed his name to Paul because he was going to be the apostle or the minister to the Gentiles. And he thought that would be an easier thing to do is to have a, a Gentile name. He's on his way to Damascus in chapter 9 to literally arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem. And possibly have them executed. Paul was there when they executed Stephen, giving his approval. Paul used to execute Christians, and he becomes this super apostle. And it's on his way to Damascus in chapter 9 that this happens. Jesus confronts him. And later on, he's taken into um, 
into Damascus, and verse 17 says this, And laying his hands on him, Ananias said, different Ananias than the one before, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's that filling of the Holy Spirit thing again. Are you sensing that theme now? Number seven, Peter's vision in chapter 10. This is interesting because Peter's now just, oh my goodness, he is like, you know, a super Jewish guy, you know. Just literally, and just cannot understand or accept the idea that people other than uh, Jewish people are going to be accepted into the kingdom of God, into the people of God. And, and, and yet God gives him this vision. It's really weird. God gives him this vision of how he can eat whatever he wants now. Everything that he used to think was unclean is now clean. So he's like, oh, you mean I can, I, I can have bacon? That's really cool. I like that, you know. But he, but he protests at first. He says, God, I, I would never eat that stuff. And, and God says, well, I've made it clean. I have made it clean. So you can eat that now. He uses that metaphor, God does, to help Peter understand that Gentiles are now going to become a part of the kingdom of God. And so he gets sent to Cornelius, the Roman soldier, clearly a non-Jewish guy and actually very antagonistic in theory towards the Jews. And in verse 45, it says this. And the believers from among the circumcised, all the Jewish guys, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. God's salvation through Jesus is for everyone. Number eight. This might be my favorite story in all of Acts. It's chapter 12. It's Peter's arrest and rescue from prison. That's all I'm going to say. It's just unbelievable. It's so fun. Number nine, Paul and Barnabas sent on their first mission. Verses two, uh, two and three of chapter 13, Luke writes this. Now at the church in Antioch, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Number 10, the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council is, in a, in a sense, the final battle between grace and law, between freedom and control. Now, we still have that battle all the time today, but this battle is essentially laid to rest at this council in chapter 15 in the book of Acts. Uh, verses 7 through 11, Luke writes this. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, this is Peter in the Gospels. He was just, he was goofy. And now he's like, he's, he is the face of the gospel now. He stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between them and us, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples... These laws that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. We can't live up to this, this law. But we believed we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. This was a revolutionary statement. We read it and go, uh-huh. They heard Peter say that and they were like, Number 11, the conversion of the Philippian jailer. 
Paul and Silas get into trouble in Philippi and they get jailed. And, and uh, around they're singing hymns of praise while they're in jail. Around midnight there's an earthquake and, and all the jail cells bust open. They could run out and be free. And, and uh, the Philippian jailer is asleep at home and he comes and discovers that, that Paul and Silas are still sitting there singing even though they could have walked out. He's overcome by their faith. And verses 30 and 31 says this, Then he, the jailer, brought them out, Paul and Silas, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then number 12, Saul's trial. This is not really a moment, I get that. It covers the last eight chapters uh, of the book of Acts, 21 through 28. This includes his appeal to Rome and the journey to Rome. Uh, I think it's, it's encapsulated in verse 11 of chapter 23. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. There was purpose in his imprisonment in Rome. There are actually eight others that are like honorable mention. Uh, the deacons get appointed in, in chapter 6. Uh, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8 and the baptism that takes place there. The death of Herod in chapter 12. Chapter 12 is just awesome. The death of Herod. I love the worms part, okay? That's, that's one of my favorite parts. You're like, what's with the worms? You've got to read this book, man. I'm telling you. Um, verse 14 at Lystra, Paul gets stoned and lived. It was like a Woodstock concert. Um, <laughs> my generation only. Double entendre. I mean, they were throwing rocks at him, okay? Uh, Paul and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement in verse 15 over Mark. Uh, Paul in Athens and how he preaches in verse 17. The riot in Ephesus that Paul causes in chapter 19. Paul got around, man. And then uh, in chapter 20, some of you will appreciate this. Paul, in chapter 20, he preaches a sermon that goes on so long that a guy named Eutychus fell asleep. He, and he was... He was sitting listening to the sermon in an open windowsill on the third floor. He fell asleep because Paul preached for so long and fell out of the window down to his death. Everybody was horrified. Some of you were like, yeah, I can understand how that might happen, Frank. Okay? Every, not the hor horrifying part, the preaching until we're asleep part, okay? But he falls to his death. Everybody's upset, and Paul says, eh, don't worry about it, and then God brings him back. Eutychus eventually does die, I'm assuming, but it, he didn't die permanently at that point. So two quick closing observations. First of all, this is all done for the sake of the gospel. Just understand, all of this is pointing to the gospel, the reality of Jesus, the salvation of man. And, and, and I want to say that that is what our church and our ministry should also be about. The gospel, the good news of Jesus... His crucifixion, the cross, and his resurrection, the fact that he's alive right now, sitting at the right hand of God, all of those things should be central and essential to everything we do as a church, otherwise we're not a church. And if those things are central and essential to everything we do as a church, we will have an impact in our community because God is that powerful, not us. This is all done for the sake of the gospel. And then second of all, just again, notice the prominence of the Holy Spirit at every key moment in this book. The book is called The Acts of, Apostle, of the Apostles, and it's so named by people who have read it over the years. 
but it's somewhat of a misnomer. Uh, Peter and Paul, and to a lesser extent, John and the other guys, they did, some, they did some really great stuff by the power of the Holy Spirit, but it was all because of the Holy Spirit. He initiated everything. It was his power. He is all over this narrative here. This book is about the centrality of God to everything that we do. The book of Acts is really not about the what or the how. It's about the who. We need to remember that every single week as we go through this book. So the work and the power of the Holy Spirit might be a more accurate title for this book. Uh, let me read to you out of the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 16. So chapters 13 through 17 are Jesus' last night with his disciples, and he's teaching them. And in chapter 16, he says this. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? The reason they ask is because they're, just, they're distressed that he's leaving in the first place. They can't believe he's leaving. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You hear what Jesus is saying? He says, he says, as good as it might have been with me here, you're going to be better without me because you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's you and I today. That's exciting stuff. Where was I? Okay. I get excited sometimes. Verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. That may be the most encouraging thing in that passage right there. We live in this present darkness today, but that ruler of that darkness is already judged. We have already won. We're just still fighting the battle. Acts is the fulfillment of John chapter 16. And all the work and the power that the Holy Spirit does. I can't wait. Please come back next week and we'll get started in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Let me pray. We'll have Camille and Andrew come back up and lead us. God, thank you for your words and this truth uh, and for this exciting narrative uh, that should really, by the power of your Spirit and the application of the Spirit to our hearts, uh, this should be a great time during these next 10 months of seeing and watching how you work and applying it to our lives today. God, that's my prayer for our church today, that we would be able to do that, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.